You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. And to, to keep in step with the Holy Spirit means that we submit to the Holy Spirit. It means that, that we, we yield to his guidance and to his fruit. It means that we, by his power, understand that the cross of Jesus Christ is the very center of our lives. The spirit-filled life is the cross-centered life. And it's just slides. It's just technical difficulties, right? That's when we understand that the spirit-filled life is the cross-centered life, it changes the way we think about everything that we experience. And, and the cross-centered life, just so you know, if we are living the spirit-filled, cross-centered life, then it means that uh, it's gonna have a good effect on our church. It's gonna change our church. The, keeping in step with the Spirit here at Galatians 5.25, it will result in a healthy church. And that's what Galatians 6 verses 1 to 10 shows us. That's how the, they're, they're connected together. In chapter 6 verses 1 to 10, it, Paul is showing us what it looks like in a community of faith when we are keeping in step with the Spirit. I think we learned at least three things in this passage, okay? If we're keeping in step with the Spirit, resulting in a healthy church, it means, number one, we move toward the wayward. It means, number two, we love one another truly. And it means, number three, we endure in love as central to our witness. And uh, what I'd like for us to do today is to just slow down and spend some time on each of these, but first I want us to pray again and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, indeed, we, we ask now together, united now together, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, please speak to us in your word. Please speak to our church and bless us in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing here I, I want us to look at is that if, if we're walking, keeping in step with the Spirit, resulting in a healthy church, it will mean, number one, we move toward the wayward, all right? Part of the good, part of the good that keeping in step with the Spirit affects for us as a church is that we together try to keep one another from ruining their lives, okay? Look at, look at verse one here, chapter six, verse one. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There are three things here I wanna point out. First, in this verse, we see there's a person who's caught in transgression. Second, there's a spiritual person who seeks to restore that person caught in transgression. And then third, there is the manner of how that action to restore is carried out. Here in Galatians 6 verse 1, Paul is talking to us about corrective church discipline. Corrective church discipline. Now, I want to just step back and, and explain a little bit more about, about what that is. There are two types of discipline in the local church. First, there's formative discipline. 
which means if, if, if we're being formed, formative discipline means that we're learning, we're being instructed, we're being trained together in the word of God. And then, besides formative discipline, there's corrective discipline. And corrective discipline means that together we correct sin in the hopes of redirecting our fellow church members to Jesus. And this corrective discipline part is, is very much part of normal discipleship. I don't know what you think when you, when you hear the phrase corrective discipline, but at its most basic level, corrective discipline happens anytime, anytime we are challenged by the word of God and or we recognize the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, I, I hope that happens a lot. Because if, if we read the Bible and we are never challenged by it, it either means that we're perfect or we're doing it wrong. And we're not perfect, okay? We want this corrective discipline to be part of our life together as a church. It's why every Sunday in our worship service, in our liturgy, we have a moment where we together confess our sins to God. And it's what follows a time of exhortation. So we are exhorted and then we're invited to confess our sins and to repent and to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Again, just at its most basic level, Corrective discipline is a normal aspect of the Christian life when we live the Christian life honestly and whole. And then, however, there are times when corrective discipline becomes a more formal practice. And Jesus taught us about this in Matthew 18, verse 15 and following. Paul mentions this in several of his letters, especially in 1 Corinthians. But, but, nor, but, but, but formal corrective discipline happens when a church member gets caught in transgression. That's Paul's words there in verse 1. Caught in transgression. It means that, this, that, that a church member is doing some outward serious sin and they don't stop. The, the normal rhythms of corrective discipline are, are not affecting a change. The person remains unrepentant. And in that case, a spiritual person should seek, should seek to restore them. And, and when Paul says spiritual person here, he simply means a person who has the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul is talking about a fellow church member who lives by the Spirit which could be any of us, right? That person, any of us, any person who walks in the Spirit, who keeps in step with the Spirit, that person, that spiritual person, should go to the person caught in sin and should exhort them to stop. And, and going to them in that way, seeking, trying to get them to stop, imploring them to stop, that's meant to be a way out for the person, see? The main purpose of corrective discipline that Paul says here is restoration. We exhort the member to stop their pursuit of sin because we sincerely want our brother and sister's good, right? We, 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 we exhort them to stop their pursuit of sin because we sincerely do not want them to ruin their lives, which is what unrepentant sin will do. And so we move toward them to restore them. And we do that 
Paul says, in a spirit of gentleness. And gentleness, which we saw last week, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it's something that's not hard for us to do when our real purpose is restoration. We're not trying to punish the person caught in sin. We're trying to help them. We're not trying to hurt them. We're trying to keep them from the hurt and wreckage that sin will cause. And so we move toward them to restore them and we do it gently according to the way Jesus commands us in Matthew 18. Matthew 18. At the end of the day, this really all comes down to simple obedience to Jesus. Look, I, I understand that corrective church discipline is not easy. It's uncomfortable. I can feel it in the room right now, can't you? It's uncomfortable, right? And sometimes our attempts to restore people fail. Sometimes our attempts for restoration fail. But the question of whether a church practices corrective church discipline is a question of whether that church follows Jesus and does what the Bible says. If we are a church keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, if we are a healthy church, Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 will be true of us. We will move toward the wayward. Second thing to see here. If we're keeping in step with the Spirit, resulting in a healthy church, number two, we will love one another truly. Now, the central command for this entire passage is verse two. Verse two is the main idea that Paul elaborates in everything else he says here all the way through verse 10. But for now, I want us to focus in on verses two to five, because th these few verses are kind of packaged together. And I want you to notice three parts, okay? First, there's the main idea, and then there are two clarifications, okay? Main idea, two clarifications. The main idea is in verse two. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So this is a command, bear one another's burdens, and Paul has embedded into this command its effect, right? The grammar is actually future tense. Paul says, bear one another's burdens. And in this way, by, by bearing one another's burdens, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what is the law of Christ? Well, the law of Christ is to love others. That's the command Jesus gave us in John 13, on the night that he was betrayed, which is coming up this Thursday, Maundy Thursday, the night Jesus was betrayed. On that night, Jesus said to his disciples, as he says to us, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And of course, the apostle Paul knew this command. Paul has already been thinking about this command in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, For in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says, But through love, 
serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Chapter 5, verse 22. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions. And so by the time we get to chapter 6, we know that faith is expressed through loving others. And love is expressed through serving others. And love expressed through serving others is so deep and important that it actually fulfills the Old Testament law. And so Paul here in chapter 6, he's just repeating that same idea. In chapter 6, verse 2, he's repeating the same idea he's already mentioned in chapter 5. So, so just try to track with me here. I'm going to ask that a few times. This is a dense passage, and so I try to track with what, what's happening here, okay? Jesus' new commandment for his people is to love one another. That's the law of Christ, to love one another. And we fulfill that law, we will actually love one another the way Jesus said when we bear one another's burdens. Loving one another truly means bearing one another's burdens. That's the main idea in this passage, okay? And now clarification number one comes in verse three. Clarification number one is that Paul's command here applies to everyone. When Paul says verse two, he's speaking to the whole church about how we live together. And he has in mind a holy reciprocity. He's saying, hey, all of y'all, all of y'all, bear one another's burdens. We gotta do this together, we're doing this together. But now Paul suspects that there will be some individuals who hear that command and think it does not apply to them. They're going to hear Paul say, bear one another's burdens, but they're going to think, eh, I'm good. I actually, I, I don't actually need help. I, I think I can handle my stuff on my own. Well, see, Paul anticipates that way of thinking. And he says, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, if you think you are something as in you think you don't need help, you think you can handle life without burden-bearing support from others. If you think that, you deceive yourself. You're actually buying a lie. It's not true. You do need help. We all need help. We know that, right? Every single one of us in this room needs help. How's that land? How's that land right now? Think about that. How's that sounding to you? How, how does it sound to you? How does it land on you to know that you have needs that God intends others to meet? Several years ago, I read this little book called Side by Side by a, a Christian psychologist named Ed Welch. And I was reminded about that book this week. And I, I went back and I found it and opened it up and read through my notes. And 
Uh, it's such a helpful book. It's, it's such a good book. The, book. the book is actually divided. It's almost an application of this passage. The book's divided into two parts. The first part of the book is about having burdens yourself that others help you bear. And then the second half of the book is about how you help others bear their burdens. But the, the real genius of the book to me is the very first page. The very first page right away Ed Welch says that to be human means two things. You know what they are? To be human, he says, means two things. It means we need help and we give help. We need help and we give help. And that's true of humans because God made us that way on purpose. God God made us to need others and for others to need us. And if, if that's true of humans in general, how much more true for the church of Jesus Christ? All of us as brothers and sisters in our life together as a church, we each need help and we give help. And if we don't understand it's both, if we, if we ever think it's one and not the other, that will actually distort the church community. Here's what I mean. Track with me. If you think you help others bear their burdens, if, 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 if you think you help others bear their burdens, but you don't need any help with your own, it will eventually lead to pride. And that pride will alter the source of your help for others from being God and his word to being yourself. The only real and lasting way you can ever help others is to know, like Luther once said, that even on our best days, we are all just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Givers of help are also needers of help. The other side is also true, okay? Track with this. If you think you only need help from others, but you don't give help, or you think you can't give help, that will also lead to pride. But not to the pride of arrogance, it will lead to the pride of self-pity, to thinking that you're poor and pitiful and the whole world should be bending over backwards to make things easier for you. It's not good. Both kinds of pride, the pride of arrogance, the pride of self-pity, both kinds of pride harm the church's life together. Both kinds of pride will warp the church community. And so we, we need to get this, brothers and sisters, givers of help are also needers of help and needers of help are also givers of help. That's what Paul means and clarifies when he says, bear one another's burdens and understand this applies to everybody. And you are deceived if you think it doesn't apply to you. Got it? 
And, and the way not to be deceived, he keeps going, the way not to be deceived, the way to realize that you have burdens and you also need help with those burdens is to just take an honest look at your life. Just examine yourself. That's verse four. Just examine yourself. And this is clarification number two in verse four. Clarification number two is that each person must take responsibility for themselves. Okay, now look, verses four and five. It, it's a little puzzling, okay? So we have, to, we have to really try to follow Paul's train of thought here. Paul says in verse three, hey, don't think you're something and deceive yourself. But verse four, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So to test your own work and actions means to examine yourself. Examine yourself, but, but don't examine yourself in comparison with your neighbor. If there's something about yourself that you think is great, don't make that assessment based upon how you size up with others because verse five, for each one will have to bear his own load. And the word for load here in verse five is different from the word for burden in verse two. Paul knows what he's saying, okay? When Paul says burden in verse two, he's talking about something. The idea is something, it's really heavy, it's concerning, it's overwhelming. But the word here for load is not like that. It, 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 simply, it simply means load, load. That's a great translation for this word. The idea is a load of responsibility. And so Paul is saying that each individual member is responsible for themselves. We, we all have burdens. We need others to help us bear, just like we help others bear their burdens, and at the same time, we're all responsible for our own stuff. It means, hey, I've got an issue that I need you to help me with. I have an issue, I need you to help me with my issue. But my issue is not your issue, it's my issue. See, it's my issue, and ultimately, I'm going to be held accountable not for how you did or did not help me, but I'll be held accountable for what I did. Tracking? It's interesting in verse five that Paul, is, he puts this in the future tense. He says, each will have to bear his own load. Now, many commentators think that Paul is referring to the future day when we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. One day, we're all gonna stand before Jesus as individuals. We don't think about that a lot. Think, use your imagination for a minute. Go there, okay? One day, every single person, every one of us will stand before Jesus. And when we do, in that moment, every comparison we make today between ourselves and others, it will be so silly then. Every complaint that we have, every grumble that we might make about so-and-so or this or that, it will be so empty then. Look, whatever, whatever you have going on in your life, 
Whatever right now you're dealing with, whatever is going on in your life, one day we will all stand before Jesus and we will be responsible for ourselves. And that's a helpful clarification, right? Thank you, Brother Paul. (laughs) Thank you for that. So let's try to put verses two to five. It's kind of dense, but let's try to put verses two to five all together. Here's my paraphrase of what Paul is saying. Okay, so this is the flow of thought here in verses two to five. Paul is saying, paraphrase, bear one another's burdens. And by doing so, you will fulfill the law of Christ to love one another. And don't think that you don't need help. If you think that, you're deceiving yourself. Just examine your own life and you'll see, but don't examine your life in comparison with others. Don't focus on how you measure up with so-and-so because in the end, we will all be held accountable for ourselves. That's Galatians chapter six, verses two to five. And if we keep in step with the Spirit, resulting in a healthy church, this will be a reality for us. It will mean that we love others truly, which means that we live interdependent lives of mutual burden bearing. We need help and we give help and we are responsible for ourselves. Amen? God let it be, right? We want that. And that brings us to the third and final point. If we keep in step with the Spirit, resulting in a healthy church, it will mean, number three, we endure in love as central to our witness. There are three parts I want to point out here. There's a principle, an encouragement, and then a focus. For the principle, skip down to verse 7. Verse 7 Paul reinforces what he's been saying with this principle of sowing and reaping, which is basically the principle of causality. This is about the way God has ordered the world. If we sow apple seeds, we get apple trees and thus apples. It just, it means that we are able to do certain actions now and trust that it will have a certain effect in the future. This is really important for human life. We don't think about it a lot. This is really important because without this, without this type of reaping and sowing principle, everything in our world from our perspective would be random and absurd. Because it would mean that we plant apple seeds and we have to say, I don't know, we'll see, right? Everything is gonna be a guess. Well, we'll have no clue actually what effect our actions might have. And that type of randomness and unpredictability would make our actions pointless. Everything would be a crapshoot. And eventually we would self-destruct. We would. But that's, that's not how God made the world. And that's not how it goes for the life of the church. If you sow in the flesh... You're going to reap the corruption of the flesh. Count on it. Bank on it. If you're walking in the works of the flesh, described in chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, you will not get a healthy, united church. You will get a corrupt, divided church that will destroy itself, just like Paul says in chapter 5, verse 15. But if you walk in the Spirit, if you sow in the Spirit, you will reap eternal life, which of course refers to our life with God in the future new creation. 
But it doesn't only mean that. The eternal life that Paul says here is not just life in the future, but it's the joy of life with God that we can begin to experience now together as the church. Eternal life is a blessing that doesn't just start after we die, but it's a blessing that we can know now, and then it just only gets better. See, the problem with the churches in Galatia is that there were at least some who thought that they could live in the flesh and boast in the flesh and sow in the flesh, but still reap that eternal life blessing. And to think that way is to defy the way God ordered reality. To think that way is to mock God. And this is something we should consider for a minute. Do you ever think that way? You ever think like that? Do, do, do you think that you can sow in the flesh but reap in the spirit? Do we as a church ever think that way? Last year the, um, in the summer, the pastors, early summer, the pastors did an exercise over the course of several weeks where we considered some diagnostic questions related to our church culture. We, we basically just like, we, we, we pop the hood and we together discuss some really good pointed questions. And one of the questions we discussed went like this. Is there some place in your church's life where obedience to Jesus is being withheld, but we expect his blessing anyway? That's a good question, right? That's a good question for a church. That's a good question for us personally. It's a, it's a question, it's really just another way of asking, is there any way that we, we might be mocking God? Anyway, is there any way that we might be sowing one thing and expecting to reap another? Church, we want to sow in the Spirit. Amen? We want to sow in the Holy Spirit. And we want to sow in the Spirit in the confidence that sowing in the Spirit will mean reaping eternal life. And it's actually that confidence, it's that confidence that enables us to endure in love. And that's where Paul goes in verse nine, okay? So we gotta follow the train of thought here. Look at verse nine. I think in verse nine, there's an implied therefore, okay? So because of this principle of sowing and reaping, because if we sow in the spirit, we will reap eternal life. Therefore, let us not grow weary in doing good. Why? Because in due season, or literally in its own time, we will reap if we do not give up. See how it's connected? The, the principle of sowing and reaping is meant to encourage us. Paul is saying, hey, hey, because sowing in the spirit will mean reaping eternal life, keep on sowing in the spirit. Don't grow weary, but keep on doing good. Keep on loving one another. Don't think that is pointless. It's not pointless. Keep on, because if you do, church, you will experience the harvest. If you keep sowing in the Spirit, there will be fruit. 
There will be a harvest. You will see it. We will see it. We will experience in we will experience that reality in this church. And that's why Paul in verse 10, he says, whenever we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to the household of faith, which is the, the local church. And you can see it all makes sense, right? If sowing in the spirit means that we will indeed reap, then not only do we want to endure in sowing, but we want to sow as much as we can. We, we want to sow in every opportunity we get. If we're going to reap doing good, we want to keep doing good more and more and more and more every chance we get if we know we're going to reap. See, that's how it all fits together. And it all just comes back to love. It all comes back to love. I, I want to be sure we catch this. Uh, in this passage, the whole passage here, verses 1 to 10, the word love is not explicitly mentioned, okay? But all of the verbs here about the church's life together, they fall under the banner of love. This is what loving one another looks like in the local church. It means we, we move toward the wayward because we love them. It means that we bear one another's burdens. It means that the church supports their pastors, verse six. That's what verse six is, thank you. It means that we sow in the spirit and we keep on doing good. And the doing good here, it means precisely that. It means that we do good to others in the effort to seek their good. We want their good and so we do good to them. It means we love them. It just means we love them. All of this comes back to loving one another. And as we seek the good of everyone, in every opportunity we can, we especially want to do that to the church. We especially want to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we who are part of the family of God. In fact, I think it's a prerequisite for any kind of good we might do outside the church. Now, in terms of the way we talk around here, we as a church, had, we have three essentials. We just had the foyer on Friday night, so I've been talking about this this last couple of days. We, have, we call them three essentials, three things that we really, really, really care about as a church. The first is that we worship Jesus. They're on the, the, the door when you come in. You can see it on the door. We worship Jesus. The second is that we love one another. We love and serve one another. And the third is that we seek the good of these twin cities. And the order of those three things matters. It's intentional. Because we, we actually can't really, we can't really seek the good of the Twin Cities if we don't love one another. Why? Well, it's because our love for one another is central to our witness. That's what Jesus taught us. That's what Jesus taught us. Now, we know from verse 2 that Paul is thinking about the words of Jesus in John 13. Paul's thinking about this command of Jesus. The law of Christ is the new commandment that Jesus gives us to love one another. That's John 13, 34. But do you know what Jesus says in verse 35? John 13, 35. In verse 34, Jesus says, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Verse 35. And by this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The reason 
that we focus our love on the church, the reason that we especially love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is because that love is precisely what shows the world the, the life-transforming love of Jesus. You can see it here. You can see it here. So church, look, we, we're all just beggars, man. Who found bread? On our best days, we're just beggars who have found bread. And, and as we love one another, we just want each of us to have more bread. And as we're having more bread together, then we, we go out, right? And we invite others, come get some of this bread, right? We go out and we say, is there anybody hungry in these cities? Anybody? Anybody looking for bread in the Twin Cities? We go out and we ask that question and we say, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him. Come to him. Know that Jesus came to this world to save sinners. Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserved for our sins. Jesus was crucified for us. He was dead and buried for us. And then on the third day, Jesus was raised for us. And right now, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will be forgiven for all your sins and declared righteous in Jesus. You will know eternal life if you trust him. So trust him. Put your faith in Jesus right now. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. That is an invitation for all of us. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, this is what brings us now to the table. At this table, the, the bread represents the body of Jesus and, and the cup represents the shed blood of Jesus. And this is a meal that we share together as those who are united to Jesus by faith. For those of us here who have put their faith in Jesus, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, when we eat and drink together, we remember his death for us. We receive his grace afresh and we give him thanks. We worship him, which is our first essential. We worship Jesus. And I invite you to do that now if you trust him. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.